Okay, you have your bulletin, the text that we're going to be looking at. We're back into Joshua, not because we're preaching expositorily through Joshua, but because we're doing a series, and we're coming to the end of it, of rediscovering God through the Old Testament. Um, Carolyn Custis James, who I introduced to you last week, writes in Lost Women of the Bible, the loss of a woman leaves a terrible void. Just ask any man who has lost one. Uh, After he lost his beloved wife, C.S. Lewis wrote, her absence is like the sky spread over everything. Uh, When the famous Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, lost his wife, Margaret, he staggered under the weight and said, the power of it is a melting grief. The first man found weeping in the Bible wasn't Adam after he unleashed evil upon the world. And it wasn't Moses after he was barred from entering the promised land that he could see in which his whole life had been spent building up towards. It wasn't David after he had a scandalous sexual sin after he committed treason, murder, a conspiracy to cover it up, and then had one of the longest seasons probably of any Bible character with a heart of steel towards the Lord. It wasn't him. The first man documented weeping in the Bible was Abraham over the lifeless body of his soulmate, Sarah. That's the first documentation of crying in the Bible. Now, we have and are almost through this series on rediscovering God through the Old Testament. We've looked at some really incredible Bible celebrities, right? We've seen Jacob. We've seen Moses. We've seen Joshua, David, Elijah. We've seen Isaiah. And we've been tracing these first encounters that God has with them. Well, last week we broke up the bachelor party and introduced some ladies into this discovery, into this journey of encountering God through the Old Testament. And we started with Eve last week, and we saw that Eve was a blueprint for a woman. What is a woman? The blueprint for a woman is stamped into Eve, the image of God, male and female. And we saw that the image of God is something of the highest rank. It is a little lower than God himself, according to David. And that the image of God entails walking with the wonder of God and mirroring the wonder of God in all of life. And we also saw with Eve that she was a can't-do-it-alone kind of helper. In other words, it can't get done without her kind of helper. It wasn't that she was just an, an extra to assist She was a compliment that the work can't get done without her kind of a helper. And today, though, we're going to look at a very distorted image of God. Today, we're going to perhaps look at the most unlikely candidate for an encounter with God in all the Old Testament. We're going to look at the beautiful Rahab. Now, what's our goal in this series? Why are we doing this series? Why are we looking at these characters? Are we doing these characters that I was talking to a friend of mine the other night? Because 
We look at a character and we want to say, be like the character. Is that our goal? Or don't be like the character. Is that the goal for why we're doing this? That, that is not our goal. Our goal is to rediscover God afresh. Our goal is to be surprised by God. Our goal and our hope is that God will make himself real to us in a deeper, more personal way. That's the purpose of the study. So please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're going to look at Joshua 2, 1 through 21. You have it in your bulletin. Let's start at verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, the men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will certainly overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and had hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in, in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now before the men laid down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window uh, through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the door of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated.
Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We ask that uh, you would illuminate our eyes, the eyes of our heart, to the wonders of you, so that the image of God would be progressively restored in our lives, that we would walk personally, powerfully, deeply with you, and that we would mirror the wonder of you in all that we do, in our relationships, in our interactions, in all the spheres of influence and callings and places that you've placed us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there's a lady named Betty Frieden. She wrote an immensely uh, influential book called The Feminine Mystique. And uh, in that book, she said that the modern woman is troubled by an unnamed problem. She says that the modern woman is hauntingly discontent and longing for fulfillment, is what she says. Uh, And then she lists the root causes that she believes are the reason why women are hauntingly discontent and longing for fulfillment. Now, to no one's surprise, no one here, probably no one had even read the book, at the top of her list of the root cause, the cause for why women have this uh, unnamed problem are men, right? Male dominance is the way it's phrased. Now, uh, she ends up then, after she lists this list, the men at the top of the list of the root problems for why women are deeply discontent and longing for fulfillment, she says what the solution or the way out of it is. And she says the way out is to have freedom from these causes. So you need freedom from men, right? The feminine mystique. You need freedom from this and freedom from that. And then the contentment in a woman will come back and the longing to be fulfilled will go away as fulfillment starts arising in the soul of a woman, okay? Now here's what's fascinating to me. That's not fascinating to me. What's fascinating to me in this is that in her list of all the causes, the root causes, all the causes are outside the modern woman. All the causes are in problem people and in problem situations and circumstances and in problem societal structures. In other words, the problem, the unnamed problem, the discontent that's in the longing fulfillment is not found in the modern woman. It's found out there in other stuff. So it's not found in a modern woman's belief structures, her interpretations of reality, her thoughts and feelings about life. It's not found in her hopes In other words, her sources of affection and her sources of acceptance and happiness. It's not found there. It's not found in her desires, her wants, her longings, her cravings. The problem is not found there. The problem also is not found in her fears, the anxieties, the worries, the nightmares that dominate her. In other words, the problem is out there, not 
in here. Now, Joshua 2 reveals that this haunting discontent and longing for fulfillment is not just a modern woman's experience, but an ancient woman's experience as well. Here's what we got. At Joshua 2, we are at, we could call Joshua 2, let's try it again. All right, that's what's happening at Joshua 2. Let's try it again. Let's try to get back into the promised land. Because here's what's happened. This is the second reconnaissance team that's being sent into the promised land. The first reconnaissance team was sent out by Moses, and it involved 12 spies, one from each of the tribes of Israel. And it was a disaster. They were supposed to go into the promised land. They were supposed to scout it out, and they were supposed to come back and warn Israel to trust in God to enter the promised land. And it was a complete disaster. Uh, The 12 all saw the right things. They all saw giants in the land. They all agreed, yes, there are big people in this land. Right? 10 of the 12, however, saw in light of the giants, grasshoppers. So they saw the giants in the land. They looked at themselves and they looked at Israel and they said, we're grasshoppers. And a tsunami of fear swept Israel. Panic rolled like a giant wave throughout all of Israel. And there was no recovery. There were only two of the 12 spies who saw God. Only two. Now, what happened is that first generation then spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness learning and discovering who God really is. They weren't ready to go in. So now here we are 40 years later at the edge of the promised land trying to do it again. Now what Joshua does, and you could tell the wheels are turning with him. He says, look, 12 didn't work good last time. Two are the only people that saw God. Let's pick two spies this time. So two spies are sent into the promised land, all right? And up to this point, everything seems to be an overwhelming success. I mean, if you read Deuteronomy, which is the book right before this, and you read chapter 1 of Joshua, you're thinking, this is going to be a blowout. I mean, the second generation has learned and discovered, watching their parents fail and their grandparents fail in trusting God and watching their parents and their grandparents slowly get put back together by God in the wilderness, they grew in a genuine knowledge of God and a deep trust for him and were ready to enter the promised land. So everything up to this point is success, right? No sooner does their adventure begin, and we're still in verse 1, and if you were a Hebrew reader or the modern reader today would say to himself, we're still in verse 1, uh-oh, this can't be good. Oh, no. Oh no, is it going to happen again? The text goes like this, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies. That's a very, you got to be careful with that word. Saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So far, so good. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Nothing good happens if you're out at 2 a.m. in the morning. Nothing good happens if you're out at 2 a.m. in the morning in a beautiful prostitute's house. 
The literal translation goes like this. And they went and entered the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and spent the night there. The wording there for spent the night gives us no relief. If you're looking for relief from the word spent the night, you've got two choices. And the choice isn't made clear in the text so far. Sleep or sex. That's what it means. No relief. So here's what we do. How do you begin a mission from God in a whorehouse? How does that happen? The Haggadah, when I, I want you to think of the Haggadah as a Jewish commentary. The Haggadah was written during the Greek and early Roman period as a commentary on the Old Testament. The Haggadah said Rahab was one of the four most beautiful women in the world. And said that she had slept with most, if not all, of the great and powerful men in her day. And the Haggadah says that's why she is such a source of information in that town. The Haggadah says this is why she's so well informed and it's why she has such an interesting, direct and familiar access with the king of Jericho in verse 3. In verse 2, right? Now, did the Haggadah get Rahab right? Did it? Well, there's no historical evidence to say contrary to that. But regardless of what the Haggadah says, the first three verses of Joshua 2 are overloaded with sexual overtones. In fact, there are several words in these first three verses that are clearly double entendres that the Jewish reader wouldn't have missed. And a double entendre is a word that has double meaning. So it has a surface meaning that is very ordinary and innocent, but it has a deeper meaning that is intentionally sexual. Especially, verse 3, when the king is speaking to Rahab through his messengers. One commentary said, this is body sarcasm at its best. Now, when the Bible, please hear me, when the Bible pursues sexual overtones, it's not to achieve an R rating, but it's to reveal or communicate something very specific about the characters in the story. Most importantly, how they relate to God. The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan called the unnamed problem uh, the haunting discontent in a woman, the, the longing for fulfillment. Joshua 2 in the Bible caused that, calls that haunting discontent spiritual adultery. Relating to God in an unfaithful way. In other words, looking for love in all the wrong places. In other words, looking to something or someone other than God to love you. A New Testament writer named James puts it this way. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? James is just as interested as Betty Friedan into the cause of things. Did you see that? 
James starts off by saying, what causes fights? What causes quarrels among you? He's just as interested as the real root problem of things. He wants to know what's the root. What's the cause of everyday conflict, interpersonal frustration and quarrels and fights? James is saying, let's get to the root. Let's get to the bottom of it. Just like Betty, she wants to get to what's the root? What's the cause of this unnamed problem, this deep discontent and longing for fulfillment in women? Both of them are on the same track, except here's the difference. Betty says the the cause or the problem is outside of us. James says the cause of the problem is inside of us. In fact, listen to what James says. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this? If you hear an apostle do something like that, you say, yes, uh, of course it is. Is it not this? Yes, it is this, right? Is it not this? That your passions, your passions are your desires, your passions are your wants, your passions are your longings, your passions are at war within you. What do you want to do in a war? Kill and break things. You want to win. What James is saying is that the root cause of everyday relational interpersonal conflict is having a desire that seeks to rule, win, dominate, drive, define you. It's called a mega desire, an epi desire. So he goes on to say, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, we could say it this way. This is the way we could say it. If we really desire people to like us in a mega desire kind of way, in a I've got to have it to be content and to be fulfilled kind of way, if we have a desire for people to like us that kind of way, when we have a social failure... In other words, in front of other people, we fail. When that happens, we are overwhelmed with shame and self-condemnation, self-criticism. In other words, we're overwhelmed with deep discontent and longing for fulfillment. We could say it this way. If we really desire to control our world, order, structure, Um, standards in a mega desire kind of way. In other words, I must have control, I must have structure, I must have order, I must have precision, I must have perfection in a way that makes me content, in a way that I have to have it to be fulfilled. When our world destabilizes, spins out of control, we spin out of control into deep discontent and longing for fulfillment. And finally, which applies to Rahab, if like Rahab, you really desire to have powerful, influential influential men find you attractive, desire you, even share some of their power and their influence and their wealth with you, when you lose your youthful beauty, there's nothing of you left. 
All that's left is deep discontent and longing for fulfillment. Now listen to how James describes this pursuit of contentment and fulfillment outside of God. Listen to how he describes Rahab and hearts like Rahab's. In James 4, after he gets done telling us what the quarrels and the fights are, this is what he says. After he gets done saying, you've got a mega desire that's seeking to be at war with you, just just a common everyday conflict between a husband and wife. A common everyday conflict between siblings. Common everyday conflict between church folks. He says the cause to quarrel is a mega desire that's ruled you. And this is what he says right after that. You adulterous people. James says the root problem, the unnamed problem, is spiritual adultery. Looking for love in all the wrong places. Trying to find love in something or someone other than God. Disbelieving in God's love for us and running to the love of another. Disbelieving that God's love is what reaches down to the very core of your being and produces contentment and produces fulfillment and trying to find some other love to do the same thing. That's what James is saying. But I want you to look at the beginning of verse 4. This is an unexpected twist and turn in the story. If you look at verse 4, look at the beginning. But the woman, do you see that? This is phenomenal. This is absolutely staggering. You have to put yourself into an original hearer. If they're reading the story, they're still picking themselves up off the floor in verse 1, that the spies spent the night at a prostitute's house. They're thinking this thing's undone before it even begins. Then they get down to verse 4, though, and they see this but the woman, and everything changes in the whole passage. What happens in this verse is that Literally everything changes because this woman breaks up with her old alliances. This woman severs her old ties. She cuts off, breaks up with her old way of building her life. But the woman. And in fact, we go through now about 20 verses that show just how real her breakup is with her old Lovers. So much so that she risks her life to hide the two spies. So much so that she deceives the king of Jericho as to the whereabouts of the two spies. So much so that she sends these two spies safely on their way for their ultimate mission of destroying Jericho. Now James, again, James, when he reads this account in his book, in his own name in the New Testament, when he reads the account of what Rahab does, he marvels at her. And he says, this is ideal faith. This is what real Christianity looks like. This is what living faith looks like. So what happened to Rahab? How did that but the woman get in this, in this story? What happened? Look at verses 18, and we're going to look at verse 20. I'll tell you when to jump. We're going to do 18 here. Behold... When we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet rope 
or cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Go down to verse 21. And she said, According to your word, so be it. Then she tied the scarlet rope or cord in the window. There's a pun going on here with the scarlet rope. Scarlet or red in the Old Testament symbolizes prostitution. The rope that the spies climbed down on to escape the king of Jericho and his pursuers and to live another day and eventually lead the Israelite people and army into Jericho, the rope they went down was her own personal red rope. It was her own calling card, her own business card. It was how her customers found her. It's how the two spies found her place. The red rope outside her window was equivalent in the ancient Near East to what we would call the red light district today. Now here's the, here's the pun. The word for rope also means hope. And hope is the most common use of that Hebrew word in the Old Testament. The rare use is rope. And so the pun is this. For the two spies, they take her old red scarlet rope and they assign a new hope to it. And the rope becomes a symbol of the transfer of a hope to something else. Now that scarlet rope outside her window shows that she has transferred her hope from prostitution to Yahweh. That she's transferred her hope from love affairs and power plays with men and wealth and goodies and reputation, whatever it got for her, to the love of Yahweh. This is phenomenal stuff. I mean, how does that kind of change happen? Here's the point. The point is this of the text. The point for Joshua 2, for the original reader, for the present day reader, for you and me. Here's the point. Transfer your hope to the only one who can really love you. That's the point. You see, what Rahab saw in high definition in her heart is that her present hopes couldn't love her. Her present hopes couldn't save her and her family. And she saw it in HD. And she transferred it to the only hope, the only one that can really love her. Now, when you think about this text and you think about how it moves in our own life, how do you know, how do we know when we need a hope transfer? 
How do you know that? You're sitting there and you're thinking, how do I know if, when I need a hope transfer? How do I know when this kind of change needs to take place? How do we know? Here's the answer. When your Jericho is threatened. I want you to look at verses 8 and 9. Before the men laid down, she came up to them on the roof. The original reader is going, uh-oh. And said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Now, this is fascinating. Her knowledge is beyond the average Israelite here. In fact, the commentators spin and spin and spin and say, the prototypical, stereotypical Canaanite is the ideal Israelite. Watch what she knows. She knows that not only is Jericho going down, but the whole land is going down. It just goes on. And she says, we know that the Lord's given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Why? Because we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when he came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites beyond the Jordan. Verse 11, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit, no heart. Their inner life disintegrated because of you. All the people of Jericho knew that Jericho was in danger. Every single inhabitant knew they were in danger. Now look how the people of Jericho responded to the threat. What did they do? They feared Their hearts melted. Their fear exposed their false hopes. Their fear exposed the impotence of Jericho to save them. Jericho represented all their hopes for contentment and fulfillment and love and happiness. And when it got threatened, they got afraid. The danger to Jericho revealed their fear that their hopes weren't good enough to sustain them. So what is your worst nightmare? What, what cannot happen to you because if it does, it will utterly devastate you. Maybe it's already happened and you're unraveling. Whatever that is, that's your Jericho. That's our false hope. Now, whatever it is, that is your Jericho, but I want you to see this, so please hear this. The good news, the good news is this. God reveals your fears and exposes your fears so that he can expose your false hopes, so that you transfer your hope from a faulty hope to the real hope. So the discomfort, the emotional discomfort that we go through when our Jerichos are threatened or fall, the emotional discomfort is a 
a loving way in which God actually exposes your hope is hurting you. Your false hope is hurting you. And I'm the only one that can truly love you. Now notice, Rahab's the only one in all of Jericho that moved beyond her fear to Yahweh. Do you see that? She's the only one. So for her, it was a mercy that her fear revealed her false hopes. She cannot save herself. She cannot save her family and moved her towards Yahweh. For the others, it didn't. So if you are spinning in your fear, can't get out of your fears and your anxieties and your worries, you'll continue to spin, hauntingly discontent, longing for fulfillment, and you're never going to get out of that whirlwind and that vortex until you wake up and realize in HD, this is a false hope. And you have a transfer your hope to the only one who can really love you. Now, here's how we'll end. How did Rahab see this high-definition hope? How did she come to see the love of God? Well, verses 8 through 13 that we just looked at, right, tells us she had an incredible grasp of the good news of the Exodus. So she knew things that, I mean, she knew things about God, and she says things about God in verses 8 through 13 that only two people in all the Bible have ever said. Who were they? Giants, Moses and Solomon. So she has this knowledge, this particular grasp of details of the good news of the God that, that delivered and loved Israel out of Egypt to such an extent, that again, the commentaries go berserk on her confession of faith and how it is the ideal Israelite. It's so stunning. But what I want you to notice is verse 14. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then the Lord gives us the land. When the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Do you know what the, the spies are doing here? They are saying to her, to Rahab, we bind you to us. Where Israel goes, you go. These two true Israelites are telling a Canaanite prostitute, we represent you. You identify with us now. Whatever's going to happen to us is going to happen to you. We will stand with you, our life for your life, even to death. No wonder they use the word hesed in their description of this interaction. If you look at your translation, it says, uh, what is it? Deal kindly and faithfully with you. The word there is hesed. The Hebrew word is hesed. And that's how they're describing their relationship with Rahab. Hesed is the most beautiful word in the Old Testament. Hesed means the grace of God. 
Hesed means the loyal love of God to the undeserving. What happens to Rahab is she sees in high definition Hesed for her. And when she does, it was easy to transfer her hope from prostitution, men, love affairs, sex, wealth, power, career. It was easy. Now, these two Israelite spies did not have to give their lives unto death for someone who didn't deserve it. But the true Israelite did. Matthew, in his genealogy, he shows how Abraham and Judah had a descendant that married a Jerichoan prostitute named Rahab. And they had a son named Boaz. And Boaz, I mean, Boaz would make any mother proud. Powerful, successful, loving, kind, compassionate, generous to the needy and to the poor. He sought them out. You got to, you want to know how much a woman or a mother can have an impact on a child? Boaz was probably so impacted by his mom that he himself marries an enemy Gentile called a Moabite named Ruth that the whole Bible, a whole book in the Bible is named after, and he marries her. And they have a child who has a child. Boaz ends up being the great-grandfather of King David. And then Matthew follows that line all the way down to the truest Israelite of them all, the Son of God himself, Jesus of Nazareth. And so what Jesus does, this true Israelite, Our sin of false hopes is spiritual prostitution. James makes that clear. We're spiritual adulterers. Every single one of us, every single one of us in this room commits spiritual adultery. Our false hopes are that, and and sin is a false hope, and we deserve a judgment greater than Jericho, right? But now this true Israelite of the line of Rahab, he walks in, and he says... My life for yours, even unto death. You are identified with me. Whatever happens to me, happens to you. My life for yours, even to death on a cross. And why do I do this? Because I love you. Because I have Hesed for you. Brothers and sisters, if we see that in high definition, 
we will transfer our trust in real time, in real places, amongst real relationships, away from false hopes that cannot love us, cannot give us contentment, and can never fulfill us to the one who can. Amen.